Today on The Black Goat, does science need professional critics? We talk about where and how science criticism should fit into the larger field. And a letter about how to become a reviewer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And I feel like I'm always talking about hanging out with my kid. <laughs> and I have a uh, funny story about hanging out with kids. And now once. Samin has a story. <laughs> Go for it. It's not much of a story, but I thought it was hilarious. I was hanging out with my friend and her two kids and her six-year-old. He, we were talking about going for ice cream, and so we were talking about ice cream a lot. And then he was like, ice cream, ice cream. And then he's like, ice cream, ice cream. Get it? <laughs> ice cream, ice cream. And we're like, yeah, we get it. He's like, no, you don't get it. He like kept, like, he's like, he did not believe that we understood the genius of his discovery. And it lasted like the next day I saw him again. And he was still like telling us about ice cream, ice cream. <laughs> like how, like, he was so proud of it. It was really funny. He should be. I mean, the only reason you're not like more impressed is because, you know, it's like it's part of true. the song that you've known since you. I know right? it is actually very clever. Yeah, it is very clever. Um, I I'm so glad that you guys are sharing funny a funny story about a kid because I just I feel so self conscious when like <laughs> I'm with my two friends who don't have kids on the podcast uh, and I'm like oh my kid did this thing recently so I'm I'm although I have to say incredibly validating to me I'm like okay my stories uh, about my kid are not the kids are very entertaining but also the parents when I hang out with my friends and their kids, the parents' reactions to the kids are hilarious. Mm-hmm. Like when they're like, you can tell they're so sick of their kids. This is not about this specific friend because <laughs> many of my friends are like this and they're just like trying really hard not to be like, that is the dumbest story I've ever heard. <laughs> I also, I also like how parents can sometimes seem like super callous. Like yeah. I'll be um, over at my friend's house, like watching the, so I go over to my friends to watch the bachelorette and they have two kids. Um, and so we sit in the living room and they have a baby monitor that you can hear. And sometimes like one of their kids will just like start screaming and crying and they'll, they'll just be like totally unfazed. They'll be like, just, <laughs> just give it 15 seconds. It'll be fine. You know? um, but I have a funny kid story too, which is also the, the same, uh, same two kids. So I wasn't there for the story. I'm reiterating someone else's story. So Sanjay, this should really validate you because I found a story that somebody told me about their kids so interesting that I'm about to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so my friend Andrea was saying that like uh, her kids come into um, her and her husband's room in the morning and they're, uh, so they have a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. Um, and the two-year-old daughter, like, she likes to lie next to her mom, but sometimes the son gets to lie in that spot, you know? Um, and so she's, she's started to, uh, to uh, trick the, the son um, into moving. And the way that she does it is she says, like, hey, do you want to play under the covers? And then he goes, sure. And he gets under the covers, and then she swoops in and takes his spot, <laughs> which I think is pretty impressive for a two-year-old. Um, but also it's like really adorable that so now he had the four-year-old has fallen for this twice (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah I think they have very different personalities that I mean when yeah when kids 
learn deception. I mean, it's funny being a psychologist, right? And and it's like you sort of see like, oh wow, they've developed theory of mind. Like mm-hmm. they can, you know, they they understand that like I can make him think a thing that's not true or whatever. And I guess mm-hmm. I don't know if two maybe I don't know. Two is I mean I'm not a developmental psychologist. Two is a little young for theory. Yeah, of mind, seems I think, like but, yeah, uh, precocious for deception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe there's some kind of this is this actually okay theory of mind researchers. I'm sure someone's done this already, right? But the sort of like the social bootstrapping of theory of mind, like if you have a, a an instrumental mm-hmm. goal, can you do theory of mind earlier? Someone must have done this. Well, surely <laughs> non-human animals who don't have the same sophisticated kind of theory of mind still are able to manipulate other individuals' behavior yeah. and stuff, right? So my favorite theory of mind experiment was one that uh, my son was a subject in. So my, my colleague Marjorie Taylor, who's now retired, um, they were they, they study imagination and uh, in her lab and and so they were doing this uh, um, I guess this wasn't theory of mind but it was a sort of kind of a mental representation thing so they were they were trying to see how kids could use representations of real places and so they would do this game where like the kid would come into a room and there's like a diorama of a room like a little model of a room and they'd show like you'd take like a little tiny stuffed teddy bear and you'd hide it in a place in the diorama and show the kid where you hid it. And then you take the kid next door and it's the actual room that the diorama is a diorama of. And they'd say, can you find the teddy bear? Mm-hmm. And like the kids, and they were trying to see basically whether like, cause I guess up to a certain age, kids can't, uh, um, they can't map symbolic representations of spaces onto the real thing. And they were trying to basically see could you uh, so one of the conditions they asked the kid to like imagine that they were a character inside the diorama and they were trying to see if they could sort of use imagination to help kind of like bootstrap kids into being able to um to do this earlier but i just i love the fact like this is the you know i remember talking to like our business manager once and and they were saying like yeah when we have to turn in the receipt requests for the developmental people we get like shade from central accounting all the time because they're like can you reimburse us for you know like a teddy bear and (laughs) you know and it just it looks like somebody's using like government funds to like buy toys for their children but it's like no this is a developmental psychology lab this is serious mm-hmm. science mm-hmm. that's cool anyway i like that i like that you guys are are into your friends kids stories <laughs> that thing you were saying alexa about how people um like parents get like callous and whatever it it's funny because it, it this is this experience i had once i had a kid which was like the cliche thing that people talk about is like people without kids who get annoyed at other people's kids like at restaurants or whatever mm. running around and and but I feel like this thing that doesn't get talked about as much is when it's flipped the other way around which is where like your Everyone kid else is doing something being cute and you're like yeah. no he's not he needs to it's like <laughs> where your kid like asks somebody for something that they're not like socially they're not supposed to ask for like oh can I have your candy and and you know these like childless adults are like oh that's so cute sure and I'm like no I'm trying to train him not to ask strangers <laughs> for things <laughs> turn Andre him down is so much like dogs you have no idea like you're training your dog not to jump up on people and like people and then the people are like oh my god I want him to do that more and you're like no ignore him ignore him you're putting him on a variable reinforcement schedule. <laughs> <laughs> 
You guys, seriously, it's impossible not to compare <laughs> training kids to training dogs. You make it too hard to resist. I completely, I, I know I've given you shit about this before, but I totally <laughs> use my kid as an example in Intro to Psych when I talk about classical and operant conditioning, because yeah. it's like, it's totally true. It's, yeah. it's just a part of how you raise kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should, yeah. We, uh, should we do our letter? Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Um, okay. Dear the Black Goat, I'm a doctoral candidate and I'm curious about how to go about becoming a reviewer for a journal. I have done a few reviews that my advisor asked me to help with and have been asked to do a couple on my own. But even in journals that I've published manuscripts in, I am not on the reviewer list and I'm unsure about how to go about getting on that list. Um, Does this vary by journal? Is there any way of emailing an editor to be added to the list of of reviewers? Uh, Sincerely, Potential Reviewer 2. That is an ominous signature. I am am very personally invested in in responding to this person's email um, (laughs) because I like having reviewers. You're going to add him to your reviewer list? Him or her. Or her. I think uh, an interesting thing is that I think a lot of people might have this same conception that there's a secret reviewer list, but there isn't. I mean, there's the editorial board, which is kind of like a reviewer list, but Mm -hmm. then... Um, at least the journals that I've edited for, there's not a reviewer list. Like you're in the system if you've ever been either reviewer or author, but um, but yeah, there isn't a list of people who are potential reviewers separate from the editorial board. So I don't know. I could answer this question in terms of how do you get on the editorial board, or in terms of how do you get asked to be a reviewer. Well, maybe both are interesting. I I also like. I mean, maybe you already answered this, but. Um, also, just like how do you get to be on the list of people that come up when you search for keywords and stuff like that? Yeah, I you think to, to get into the system, you have to be a, have been a reviewer, an author, or an editor, like have had some role with that journal. Or mm. sometimes it's they, it's shared across journals, so you don't necessarily have to have had a role in that journal, but in that society's journals or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's basically how you get into the system in most of the um, – or be on the editorial board, but – Usually, if you're on the editorial board, you've already been in the system. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So then, really, like if you've published in a journal, you should show up when the when the editors do a search by keyword or things like that. Mm-hmm. If you've published a relevant paper, but th- the searches in these systems are often quite terrible. Mm-hmm. And there's some companies actually working on using more intelligent algorithms to try to suggest reviewers when an editor is searching for them. And I think that would improve the peer review process a lot if we could yeah. improve those search systems. Um, and I think we're on the cusp of that. But because the searches are so terrible, I think many editors actually don't do searches. They just think, think of who right. comes to mind. Or another common thing is you skim the list of references and look at mm-hmm. who's being cited and you either ask one of those people or that like jogs your memory of other people who do some work in that. Like that's how I get a sense of the area in which they're publishing because the keywords are often kind of insufficient for that. Mm-hmm. So skimming the list of references, of course, reading the paper will often also stimulate ideas of potential reviewers, but so much of it is who comes to mind. So mm-hmm. that does disadvantage new people a lot. Yeah. I have sometimes gotten emails from people saying, I'd be happy to review for your journal just so you know. And that's always welcome. It's not at all inappropriate I don't think especially right after your paper gets accepted is an ideal time to email the action editor and say you know thanks for for seeing my paper through um I really like this journal and would be happy to help out as a reviewer if you ever need me feel free to call on me 
that's just one editor at the journal, but they might spread the word or at least they might call on you and then you're in the system. Well, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think especially journals you've published and especially with the editor who handled your paper, you can just volunteer yourself. It doesn't mean it'll lead to an invitation to review, but it might. Mm -hmm. The, the letter writer says they're a doctoral candidate with, with, how do you guys feel about doctoral candidates as reviewers? Like, do you prefer someone to have a PhD or, you know, yeah. Do, are you, will you, cause I oftentimes doctoral candidates end up being a reviewer, either like their advisor gets asked to review and they get asked to co-review, or I think maybe if they've been an author, but yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I definitely, um, wouldn't like prefer a review from a more senior person to a graduate student. I feel guiltier asking graduate students to be reviewers um, because, you know, it's, uh, you know, time consuming and, um, and I don't like the idea of putting more like service on graduate students. At the same time though, I don't like in the case of this letter, I feel like I feel like a lot of graduate students are interested in getting some exposure to reviewing. Um, so I don't do feel too guilty about that if I think like the person isn't overwhelmed with review review requests. Um, and I, yeah, you I have think to start somewhere. Some editors will not ask grad students to review, I think. I think some people feel like that's a categorical thing. But is I it don't... for is it because they think the reviews are worse or because of not mm. wanting to burden them? I think it's not just not wanting to burden them. I think it's it's some combination of not wanting to burden them, thinking the reviews are worse, and also thinking the authors would be upset or it's like unfair to the author somehow to be evaluated by someone who doesn't even huh. have their PhD or something like that. I don't know because I haven't talked to someone who holds this view and I don't hold that view. For me, the criterion, and maybe I wouldn't even be able to defend this, I'm not sure, but if I think about what criterion I use implicitly, it's basically have they published on this topic. Maybe, mm-hmm. and now I'm trying to think of a world where like they've published a preprint on this topic and I think it's mm. good, but it hasn't gone through peer review yet. I don't know what I would do in that case, but I'm perfectly happy to use grad students if they've done work on that topic that has been published and that I think is good. Right, yeah. And especially if it's like a paper that has an extensive enough introduction or review component where I feel like confident that they must know the literature to have written this paper. Mm-hmm. Um, or depending on what I'm asking them to, if, if I'm asking them as a reviewer for their stats competence, then it's enough if they've done work showing that stats competence or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to get your foot in the door as a reviewer though. Yeah, Yeah, I think like in the in the cases that I'm invited as a reviewer, I think that I have like a, a set of editors that think of me and I get review requests from them, but I don't think it's yeah. like a huge, so that's sort of consistent with what you're saying, Samin, that that people think of who comes to mind and there's like a handful of people um, for whom I come to mind for certain topics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess another way, once you get your foot in the door and you get asked to do reviews, I mean, the quality of the first reviews that you do for people will influence whether you get asked to review again. Yeah. Um, and then if you've been reviewing quite a bit and you're not on editorial board and you've been reviewing a lot for a particular journal, it's also fine to email the editor-in-chief of that journal and say, hey, I've done, you know, seven reviews for you this year. Just wondering if that might make me a candidate for the editorial board. You know, no problem if not, but I just wanted to ask. And there's also the subtle implication that if they don't put you on the editorial board, you might not be happy to right. continue doing seven reviews a year for them, but you don't need to spell that out. That's pretty yeah. obvious. 
Um, yeah. Is there is there an argument for telling somebody uh, just bide your time? Don't try to. I mean, because a lot of people talk about reviewing. I mean, and again, this is this is not from the editor's chair now, but this is sort of giving someone advice. Like, would you tell someone because reviews, as as was mentioned, they take up a lot of time. Um, they can they can become a burden. Once you're getting asked to review, it, it's never going to slow down. It's only going to increase. So would you tell somebody who's a doctoral student, you know, and this person, there's a sort of like learning experience of doing reviews, of seeing the, you know, of, of sort of like, it's more visceral to have done a review than to just have gotten reviews, right? You sort of understand what goes into that. Mm-hmm. There's often you get to see the other reviews, et cetera. So there is a learning component. But if this person's gotten to do that with their advisor, let's say, yeah, would you tell somebody who's a doctoral student, um, hey, don't worry, just uh, wait, You'll, it'll, it'll, it'll come to you soon enough? I think if they're not towards the end of their doctoral studies, definitely. I would say there's no rush at all if you're like middle of grad school or earlier. It's going to happen and, and yeah, I would save it for later. But if you're like about to graduate, I think there's some, I think if you don't like it, definitely don't try to get more more experience because you don't have to do it a ton in the that early in your career. But one argument for for getting more experience early is to decide whether or not you'd like to be on the track to do that kind of thing more. So like if you would like to maybe end up in some kind of editor role, then you got to do a lot of reviews to get there. And so if you start later, it'll take longer to get a chance to have that opportunity. And but I I guess it depends like how much experience you need to know that, how diagnostic your experiences or reviewers for that and stuff like that. But for me, like it, it was useful and interesting to have the chance to see if I like it or not relatively early on, mm-hmm. but not before like around the time you graduate yeah. from grad school, I would say. Yeah, I could, I would say also like, I think especially for a senior graduate student, I don't think I would ever like strongly recommend that they avoid reviews at all um but i might say like maybe have a cap for yourself so don't say yes more than i don't know probably grad students are dealing with like once a month but you know have a rule i think i did two reviews in my entire grad school career yeah i don't think i think a grad student can say no after the second request of the year if they want to sure i've done my service that's totally fine if you're a grad student you're doing more than like three or four a year you're you're probably doing too many it's maybe not the best use of your time unless you love it and you're like this is the main way i want to give back to my field um but yeah 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 i guess the the it's funny because i when you were saying that to me and i was thinking of someone becoming uh, the sort of the more typical like professor researcher who also edits path and thinking like you know you're by the time that's going to be an option for somebody you're going to be an associate professor probably you'll have done plenty of reviews but I, I think what what just what something you said just jogged in me like there are professional editors at yeah. um at some journals uh um and that could be a career path for somebody um and and if that's something that you wanted to go into out of graduate school or out of a postdoc, um, that would, 
which I think some people do do it's that. It's extremely like rare in the social sciences. Like yeah. there's one full-time position at science for a social science editor and there's nature human behavior. That editor is a full-time professional editor. Right. But I this think some people... Two I know of in the social, like in purely behavioral social sciences. Yeah. I know, I know of somebody who was, uh, who, who got her PhD in psychology, but now is a professional editor at medical journals and she's yeah, bounced yeah. around through that world. So I think that if you... In the more general sense, if you like the work of editing, mm -hmm. there are career paths. If, it, like if that's what you want to do and you're flexible about subfield, you could go into journals, you could go into books, you could, you know, there are other yeah. things. And so I think if, yeah, if somebody was like, holy shit, I love this work, I love making papers better, I, you know, all that kind of stuff, that might end up being a career path. But that would be a, a tiny fraction, I would think. Of yeah, people. actually, this is related to their main topic of like what's the role for people who yeah, love criticizing work <laughs> <laughs> making it better is one euphemism for <laughs> <laughs> i love to make things better by tearing them apart reviewer too uh cool well do you guys have anything else to any other i guess also i guess i think maybe this is what you're getting at that actually this person isn't behind the curve by any means it's totally normal as a doctoral student yeah, not to right. be getting That's asked true. to do reviews ever like i think mm -hmm. the mode modal doctoral student by far gets asked to do zero reviews in their entire career and yeah. that's completely fine like up yeah. until they get their phd yeah so don't yeah, worry a, that you need to do be doing it that's a really good point the i mean we talked in our last episode about self-promotion and there might be some people in your program or people you know who are like graduate students who are going around humble bragging about how burdened they are with all these reviews they have to write and uh they're weird outliers also so, probably yeah. their advisors or editors of journals that's yeah. probably why <laughs> yeah. for many of yeah. them or they're right they're they're just yeah they're exaggerating or they're trying to get those things because they think it matters or something yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. cool cool well uh thank you potential reviewer number two for your letter um and to our listeners if you are listening and you want to email us you can reach us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com if you have a question you'd like us to read and respond to on a future episode or if you just want to get in touch with us for any other reason you can also find us on twitter at blackgoatpod we're on facebook facebook.com slash blackgoatpod we're on instagram instagram.com slash blackgoatpod and you can find us on itunes you can rate us there that's a way that people find us if we are rated um i should have should have told people in the self-promotion episode to like give us fives just to mm -hmm. you know <laughs> give us however many stars you uh you feel like you want to give us um awesome well so for our main topic today we wanted to talk about the topic of science criticism and kind of a, a starting point for this uh, a, a sort of jumping off point is a paper by don ida who is a philosopher um, who wrote an article that Samin came across uh, called Why Not Science Critics? And we'll post that in the show notes. And Samin, do you want to maybe get us started by giving us the background? Like, how did you find out about this yeah. article? Yeah. So I met a woman who's faculty at UC Davis in the writing program, Sarah Peralt, and she teaches science communication and rhetoric. Um, and so she told me about the paper and also told me a lot of other interesting stuff. I've learned a lot from her. Um, yeah, and it's interesting for me because in college I took some philosophy classes and learned about like um, science studies a little bit and was pretty turned off of it. Like a lot of what I learned about it was very much like postmodernist relativist stuff. And 
it's funny because now I don't know if I reread what I had read then, if I would actually think there's more value to it or if I was reading different stuff now than then. But in the last few years, I've started to see a lot of value to people who study science from the outside. Um, and I thought this was a really good example of that. I don't know much about this author at all. I looked at, look him up on Wikipedia, but, um, but I thought he make, made a really interesting case. I mean, the, the metaphor he uses to open it, which I think is really powerful, is that in many other areas, especially in the arts, so like food, theater, music, etc., there's a specific role for critics, and they're seen as part of the ecosystem, and they're valued even by the professionals who pr- create the art. Um, and they're not seen as anti-theater or anti-food right. because they write criticism of those um, professionals. And but that he says there isn't the same thing in science, and then he goes on into details about why he thinks that is and what he thinks the solutions are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the fact that there there isn't this kind of position in science might be one reason why people might react to somebody who presents themselves as a science critic um, in a defensive way, right? So. I think if we had this sort of clear role for science critics as people who um, are doing the equivalent of what an art critic or a literature critic would do, which is like taking a specific piece, right, and providing an analysis of it, and it's it's not necessarily positive or negative, right? Um, but yeah, so like before reading the article, I had never considered um, the extending that role into science and so if somebody presented themselves to me as a science critic um i feel like what that could mean is it could mean what we're talking about somebody who engages with scientific scholarship in a critical way um but it could be somebody who um doesn't doesn't like science right but i think he would argue that the so you're saying because that doesn't exist, you might assume they're anti-science. And he argues the opposite, that because we assume that a critic would is anti-science, then we don't make room for science critics. So it's it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Like, are there no science critics because we just, for some reason of happenstance that never developed, and so now we think of anyone who criticizes it as anti-science? Or is that why there are no science critics? Because somehow science as an institution managed to create this idea that if you aren't with us, you're against us, or like that right. part of what it means to value science is to not criticize it or something like that, or not criticize it in a certain way. Right, yeah. I mean, I think the question of why that role has developed in art and literature but not in science is a good question. Um, my my go-to, like my impulse, is, is not the explanation that you're giving. I think it's more institutional. Like we do have criticism in science um but it's within the like role of reviewing and it's often anonymous which is something that that um ida talks about as well uh that that yeah the the criticism process in science tends to be like less transparent and we don't have these people who are um their their criticism isn't like part of their scholarship Um, i guess i think there's a little bit more defensiveness than that like even when I think about like the March for Science or things like that, like I feel like there's a sense that if you're not a cheerleader for science, you're somehow helping the like denialists and the quacks and all that. And yeah, like I feel like there's something particular about science that asks to be treated in a more reverent way than I think art or literature asks to be treated. 
And I don't well, know if that's... But would would art or literature critics say that they're, um, they're not lovers of art or literature? But that's the point, is I feel like in art or literature, you can love it and criticize it. And in science, I sometimes feel like there's this attitude that if you really loved science, you wouldn't criticize it because then you're like, you know, eroding trust in science and you're... So, yeah, so I had... It was really interesting for me reading this article because this was, it was published in ni- 1997. Um, I had I had a similar background as you did, Samin, with like being exposed to philosophy of science and science studies, um, and and it was sort of uh, um, it was kind of like a flash to the past to to read, you know. The, and this was such a 90s science studies feeling thing with just the like the copious use of scare quotes and mm-hmm. the, you know, mm-hmm. science as like, and I think this is what turns off a lot of scientists to this era. And there, there's a big debate that rages every time someone mentions Alan Sokol or whatever else about like, whether it's a difference of emphasis or whether it's a difference in actual like disconnect, fundamental disconnect, right? But there's a, and what, what I mean by that is that there's a way of talking about science. There's a very science studiesy way of talking about science that studiously refuses to acknowledge that there is any contact with nature in how science works. That it's it's a game. It's this uh, um, you know it's it's these contests. It's all all the the sort of like the kind of extreme bad silly version of social constructivism. Um, and I, f- I feel like science studies, there's been some discussion recently about how science studies is kind of, and again, it's people disagree about whether that, like, they always understood that science does real things. But, you know, there's been in recent years, like, with with climate change denial, some science studies people coming around and going, no, 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 that's not what we meant, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so I, you know, in reading this, I was trying, I was really trying to, like, kind of overlook some of the sort of, like, 90s humanities ticks about this and, and try to be generous in reading it and and but there were you know there were a couple of things that I think that that I thought about that are are different so one is that I think part of the part of the reason that you know Ida and certainly 1997 Don Ida the way you know the the way it's hard for that to be integrated into science is that just this way of talking about how science works as having no contact with like some kind of reality is just so at odds with how scientists think and speak. And I think there's a really, there's a very much more difficult middle ground that people tend not to gravitate towards because it's easier to gravitate towards the extremes, which is to like, to talk about social constructivism, not in a, in the simplistic reality doesn't exist, socially constructed means imaginary way, but to talk about it in the more sophisticated way, and there are certainly sophisticated social constructivists, but I think that's a place where they're, you know, talking about, like, science as a social institution, when I read good stuff about that, I find it incredibly valuable, Um, and I think a lot of what's going on in science reform right now is making, you know, connections between, like, how do we go about the business of learning more about nature and how does that how is that interfered with or changed by the social aspects of science so that was that was one thing and i i I found myself looking for ways to read this that sort of informed that and and sometimes feeling a little frustrated that it didn't go far enough and then i think that you know another another thing that 
just I was thinking about, and I don't know what the answer to this is, that the issue of like that science criticism exists within science in a way that art criticism is different from how like an artist would engage in art criticism or how a uh, uh, you know, a, an author. So, you know, one, like art and literature and food and these things are, they're created for not just for other artists or for other, in the way that, you know, a science journal is a form of communication from scientists to other scientists. It's expert to expert, it's peer communication. And whereas the products of an artist, you know, and you can debate, this is on a continuum, right? Some artists are creating very insidery, self-referential art, right? But a lot of it, and so the role of critics there is often interpretive. It's often sort of putting things into a context. Um, and the interpretive work in science is done by scientists in the context of other science. And where there's quote unquote science criticism tends to be more on the side of outreach, on science communication, um, and that's where I think science journalists often play that role, or SciComm experts, or people like that. So, but that that seemed to be another sort of difference. The the idea that like in science, we're accustomed to thinking, and different scientists have different philosophies, and different scientists have also just more and less thought put into this at all. Like some are very philosophical, and some aren't. But like the relationship with content with topics like or concepts like truth or reality or nature. Um, I think that's just a huge gap from the science studies world and and to some extent like science criticism within science has to make or maybe it doesn't have to but scientists want it to make contact with those things and it requires expertise yeah. to do that in a way that I mean there were parts of the Ida essay also that felt a little bit like him complaining that scientists aren't readable to non-experts and it's like well dude you have to understand huh the yeah that's stuff. interesting I mean I I'm sure I missed some stuff, but I read the Ida piece as being pretty middle ground. Like I thought, I thought he was blaming philosophers of science a lot more than he was blaming scientists. So I thought he was saying like, look, philosophers of science are supposed to be the ones to be, they, they're among the few people who have the expertise, but also aren't so far inside the game that they could play the role of critic and they haven't. And I also thought he acknowledged that the critic can't be a complete outsider, that yeah, like did. the critic needs some training and needs you know needs to have some insider knowledge which i thought was to me i read that as like an acknowledgement that there is some expertise and also maybe it's too generous to say like some contact with reality and nature and so on that it you can't just be trained in science studies to be able to be a really good science critic you also probably need some training in the science that you want to critique what are we picturing when we picture a science critic because i can picture a variety of different roles that seem like they have some overlap with that idea, but uh, I'm not sure that I'm thinking of the same thing that you guys are. I think there's a few possibilities. So one is like a philosopher of science who knows from the beginning of their training that this is what they want to do. So they, as part of their training, kind of integrate into a lab and become part of the lab, a lab in, in the field that they want to be a philosopher of science of. And I think this is pretty common. Like philosophers of physics and biology, I think, get a lot of training in their their topic. Um, another would be somebody who was a like a, a physicist, biologist, or scientist, or whatever, and then leaves and becomes a critic of that field. And like, what are they? What are they doing? Are they oh. writing pieces about a specific article? I think yeah. So you you mentioned earlier that like art and literature criticism is about a specific product, but I don't think it has to be. I think there's some literary critics who talk about sure. like the pattern yeah. of what gets published or things like that. So I think it could happen sure. at both yeah. levels. 
Okay. Um, uh, and, uh, and yeah, about specific findings or about the process. Like, I think it would be great to have critics of the peer review process who know a lot about how peer review works <coughs> and mm-hmm. have ideas about how to improve it. Like, we just, we do so much of it unthinkingly. Um, I know but, that and there then, are review journals, right? So, like, I guess that was the first thing that came to my mind when I thought of literary criticism was, like, reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, like, logical parallel, I think, is to, like, but yeah, reviews, but a different form than we think of reviews typically, like a public review mm-hmm. of a paper. Um, but, yeah, I agree that you would, ideally, if I were to design a science criticism system, it would go beyond that. And And, in fact, I think it's rare. We would have to, I think, have a very different form of training to have critics like that that are not psychologists but are writing that kind of criticism because i basically think you need to be trained as a psychologist to be able to write criticism at the level of an article almost maybe you guys would disagree yeah i so i was trying to envision and this was another thing like towards the end he kind of gets a starts to get a little bit into what this would look like and i i found myself yeah. wishing he he gave more con- concrete examples or, or visions of what this would look like right but in my head, what I kind of what I was imagining, maybe this is what he was going for. Maybe this was just me projecting. Is like, so there, there's the 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 ordinary practice of peer review criticism that happens within science, right? And that's really often very much within the language of science, within the assumptions of science. So that's kind of like one level. At a different level, there's kind of what science studies or philosophy of science does, which is talk about in this very meta way, this very abstract way, talk about like how science works as an institution and what are its sort of intellectual foundations. Um, And what I was imagining, and maybe this was in part reading into it because he is a philosopher of science, but wanting to sort of make contact is, is something that bridges between those two, right? That talks about either specific scientific products or discoveries or talks about larger trends or whatever, but in a way that is informed by and brings in this larger view of how scientific institutions work, how mm-hmm. scientific thinking works, right. that, that is, is critical of, of how that's playing out in a specific context. And right. I, I, think we're, I think we're starting to see meta-science start to do some of this, but you know, things like you know, questions you, you wouldn't ask in a normal peer review or a normal whatever, but like, like how did this question get chosen? Mm-hmm. And how did the framing of this question reflect certain assumptions or motivations or or extra beliefs that are not made explicit or discussed in the context? And I, I think like philosophy of science and science studies and people like that talk about those things in a really abstract way. They talk about, you know, if you think of like feminist philosophy of science, they talk about how social structure shapes the you know funding and shapes the choice of questions. But we don't see a lot of stuff really at the level, at a more kind of concrete level of like, you know, here's here's a study and here's like how those processes are, are right. playing out in the way that this study came to exist and the way it came to be understood within the scientific community. Right, yeah. So that, that was what I imagined he was heading towards or not imagined. I mean, I think I, I don't want to give him too little credit. I, I That's what I took him to be headed towards. Mm-hmm. Does, that make, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, well, I think, like, so he discusses the um, the role of expertise in criticism, and um, I think he ends up falling on the side that we can't have, um, we can't have critics, 
we can't require critics to have a ton of expertise or to be like equivalent in expertise to the people producing the work um, because the problem with that is that you don't have anyone with any kind of outsider perspective and everybody who's a critic is also invested in the field, right? So I see, I guess I can imagine criticism happening on these two different levels at a sort of systemic level, but also at a like an individual finding or paper level. And to me, maybe the two would be more well suited to different levels of expertise. So yeah, I would like to see um, science criticism at the level of the field coming from people who are really like, are removed from the field to some degree. And I, I liked his idea of like uh, a lover of the subject matter and yet not the total insider. Um, although, you know, maybe there's room for critics who are also not lovers of the subject matter. Um, but then it also feels like at the level of um, at the level of criti criticizing a paper, um, you'd almost need to be an insider. I think for some kinds of criticism, yes, but I think I adopted that view implicitly without realizing it way too strongly. So like, for example, the criticism that so much of psychology is based on college students in North America. Oh, yeah, I yeah, ignored right. that criticism for so long. Yes. From undergrads, I thought, oh, they're just naive. From outsiders of the field, like, same thing. I thought they're naive or whatever. Yeah. And I allowed myself to push it away for so long. Right. Partly because I had adopted this view that like, to really understand what we're doing, you have to be one of us. And that's such a naive criticism and so on. And I think there's other things like that too. Like a lot of the stuff with the replicability crisis or whatever you want to call it is stuff that actually like a sixth grader or maybe a oh, 12th grader. Oh, I totally grader agree with that. I mean, I guess maybe out. we're just like um, disagreeing about what would fall into what category. Like I think like mm. common methodological practices could easily I be see. criticized by somebody outside of the yeah, yeah. field for sure. And but in often fact, the, yeah, the criticisms of the specific advantage. papers, like when in my lab with undergrads, when we read a paper, like almost every single week, they will bring up the college student participant criticism. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I used to treat that as like, oh, that's like, you haven't learned yet how to criticize a paper if you're focusing on that. And now I, I treat it very differently. I'm like, yeah, we should talk about that with every paper. How relevant is it? How different were the conclusions? That's interesting. Do you think we should talk about that with every paper? I think there's like, it's worth Maybe it to talk about that one, at, but... at a broad level. But I would be annoyed by like, if my lab meeting was like dominated by that conversation <laughs> every time, there's just a lot of other stuff to talk about. Sure. But I think the only because it's boring, but not because it's not relevant. I so agree. I think it's yes, relevant yes. for almost every single paper. And I think it's fine to spend five minutes of the hour long meeting on it for every single paper. And I think mm -hmm. some of my like annoyance about it was actually defensiveness. Yeah, and, sure. Yeah. And it took I'm, me a long time to realize that. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah I, I feel like the, um, like these are conversations we have within the field. And so I think the argument would be that, what part of what a what a science critic could do a professional science critic who that's their thing right is that they could they could go beyond the one paper at a time and they could even go beyond some of the you know some of the stuff like the you know the the there have been a number of papers produced within psychology over the years about this but to sort of connect it to larger ways in which the you know the power structures of academia are behind this like who ends up in college is unrepresentative of, you know, in the United States, who ends up in college is unrepresentative of the country. It's definitely unrepresentative of the world. Mm -hmm. How is this shaping, how, how is this shaping our view of people? But then also, how is this reinforced by who ends up doing the studies and the, you know, and, and how are there blind spots to that? 
Um, and I, I, I feel like psychologists have tried because nobody else is doing this and there have been some good papers, but somebody with that broader perspective might be able to say like, beyond just in a, as a general issue, like how is some particular domain of work, like how is our understanding of prejudice, for example, um, affected by this? You know, and I've seen some chatter on Twitter about this where people have said like, all the emphasis on implicit bias is, you know, um, you know, I've seen this especially from, you know, people of color who are in academia, who are in psychology, who are saying, like, this that was, like, weird to me when I started taking psychology classes, because it's like, I've faced a whole shit ton of explicit prejudice in my life, like, the, the whole field is acting as though this went away, and, well, maybe that's, like, white people who go to college feel like that's not part of their daily experience because of the peculiarities of college life but like this is part of how people face things Mm -hmm. or like another I mean to to sort of continue with implicit bias like another criticism that's come up um, is that you know implicit bias and a lot of how we study prejudice um, locates the problem in the individual minds of prejudiced or racist people or, or of sort of perpetrators of injustice and it doesn't look for systemic kinds of factors and you know sociologists are often critical of psychologists for our you know kind of focus on individual minds and and so forth and again these conversations certainly are happening but there's kind of there you know could there be a role for somebody to step back and say like what are the forces producing this emphasis on individual minds what are the sort of the blind spots and how psychologists are trained and talk to each other um, what are the ways in which psychology could contribute to a systemic understanding you know and there are psychologists who do take a systemic approach but I think it's it's not you know uh, um, it's not as much because it's just more natural for us to kind of think about like we're going to discover the you know cognitive mechanisms inside of a white person's mind and well if, if you're a white person studying white people and taking apart their minds feels very familiar. Um, whereas sort of studying how they're part of systemic problems faced by people of color would be very different. Um, so I, you know, I feel like, like we have these conversations, but I think the, the argument would be that if there was more role for sort of scholarly science critics who could look at these trends that, there might be more of this. And if there were people that were taken seriously when they spoke up and it wasn't just the annoying undergrad in your class going, well, why was this another college student sample or whatever? And Ida also talks about how, in his view, the science critic should be involved at the planning stage, not just after the damage has been done. And Mm -hmm. he talks about one example that's made maybe more progress than many other areas of science, which is in medical ethics. There are people trained in applied ethics and bioethics who are philosophers, and then they work at med schools and they're part of teams of researchers or Mm -hmm. practitioners in medicine. And I, my very, very limited experience is that I do think that in those contexts, philosophers and ethicists are taken much more seriously than in many other contexts and, and involved earlier on in the process. But even there, he says it's mostly after the fact. And hmm. um, so I think in his view, they should be involved in, and I, from what I read about him on Wikipedia, this is a position he's known for taking is that they should be in the R&D phase. What is, what is the planning phase of psychology so, research? I mean, like designing a study, I guess. Although I think, so, it's easier to think of in larger scale research right, programs. Right. So like an in industry or in fields that are really large, like where there's decades of, or like a decade of planning for something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but recently I gave a talk at a business where they do some social science research, like one of the tech companies. And they asked me like what I would do if I, if I could do change something there. And I was like, well, you're in a unique position where you could hire somebody to just be the critic in the room at every stage of the process. Right. And academics that's unlikely to happen anytime soon because we'd have to give up a tenure track line that we could spend on somebody who does actual substantive research. And even though I think that would be a good use of a line, that's mm-hmm. not going to happen anytime soon. But I think a, at a business, they could decide to take the chance. And I think it, it would probably pay off pretty quickly to have somebody in the room from the beginning at the design stage or even choosing right. what teams they're going to create and what projects they're going to pursue, yeah. like have somebody whose role it is to look for bigger picture patterns and also be a critic and right i mean so like when you first said yeah the you know when you're designing a study my reaction is like that it's not realistic to have somebody like this on every study design team or whatever but i do think like it could be the idea of having somebody like that um much the same way as you would have a statistical consultant on a large grant Mm -hmm. um having like a a philosophy of science or a science critic consultant on um, on like bigger projects or big grants. Right. It's only um, unrealistic it because we cool. design too many studies. <laughs> I think if we like were sure. right, more right, right. selective okay. about Okay, so yeah, if you want to change that, then yeah. we can change. But, but like Psych Science Accelerator could have somebody right. whose yes. role it is. Sure. So is there is there a danger, I wonder, of if you do that it becomes easy to sort of like shunt off that work and kind of, so, you know, I think about how like Facebook had uh, an ethics team within Facebook and, and the, I forget if it was called ethics or something else, but they basically had somebody who was responsible. And there was that big story that came out in the New York times a few months ago. And it, it turned out that this person was basically like, like they were getting mad that this person was asking too many questions and they mm-hmm. eventually left because they weren't allowed to do their work. And, you know, so organizationally, right, there is so I mean, this is what I'm wondering as a sort of counter, like, is it, instead of like, if you have critics, and if they're people, and if that's like a person, it's their job, then it's easy to turn that into like, okay, let's run that by the science criticism mm-hmm. team. And they gave us all this feedback, and we'll just respond to the things mm-hmm. that we feel like responding to. And then we'll have checked that box, and we'll gain the credibility. So like, would the alternative be to make this a part of everyone's work or make this a role, make this a piece of training. And maybe, I mean, maybe I feel like that's what we both, tried right? and but, it failed. Yeah. But like, <laughs> so I think, I mean, cause you brought up the, the topic of like businesses and, and I know what some businesses do in, in industry, like in the security realm in particular, they call it red teaming, right? Where you have a group of people who's responsible, like their job is to tear something apart and go through it. And in a security sense to try to see if they can break into it and that kind of thing. Um, so they're not, and, and that's in relation to a project. So you might be working on developing one product, but then you might be red teaming another. So it's not like that's your only job, you're, ex- you're experts, but you're given that role on a project basis. And so is that something that we could do more of within science is is to to change not necessarily to create jobs for philosophers but maybe you know maybe we should do that because you know <laughs> i mean a cynic might say like this is just don ida trying to make jobs for philosophers <laughs> right um but but maybe as part of that maybe you still have those people who are part of the process but then you also have regular scientists who at some point in the process it's their job yeah it's their job right. to be this part of the process yeah 
Yeah, that right. could work maybe. Which also the taking turns idea is interesting too. Um, if we also consider like that there there could be problems with having um, people who self-select as critics. Um, so yeah, you might get a very particular kind of person who decides to be a critic, which might be okay I'm- or it might be bad. I think we should talk about that because I've noticed recently. So James Heathers was just on NPR. Apparently, I did. I read the transcript. I didn't listen to it. But on a weekend, just edition, like you, I, I tried <laughs> yeah, right. to find you on NPR and I couldn't find it. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure I wasn't. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, the the introduction to him, or at some point, the interviewer, um, I can't remember her name right now. I'm blanking on it. But she describes him as a volunteer critic, which is the nicer version. I've often seen like self appointed that. And in my mind, that always uh-huh. has an edge to it. Or like a vigilante. Yeah, but so self-appointed is the middle ground yeah. <laughs> between vigilante and volunteer. Yeah, sure. Um, and I feel like, yeah, a lot of people have a problem with that. And you're right, there probably is a selection effect and who would choose that, especially when they know they're going to be described as vigilante. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. But yeah, so is it a problem if, if the critics are self-appointed or should there be some kind of vetting process for who gets to be a critic like there is for almost any other professional? Right. I mean, I think I have two reactions. One is like, I think it's like fine for people who want to criticize to criticize. Um, and I don't think we should try to like exclude that just because, um, I don't know, that might like attract people who... Um, have like a more aggressive style or you know mince their words less or whatever um, but I, I don't like the idea of totally excluding the criticisms of people who wouldn't self-select mm-hmm. yeah I uh, I mean thinking back to like how this works in you know art and literature and music you know I'm not I'm not sure it's all as rosy as Don I mean I don't know that world all that well because it's not mine but you know when I think about mostly what I've encountered in terms of music critics right like there's this kind of dual view of music critics where you know people often musicians often will say in an abstract sense that they appreciate them but they say something bad about your album and and all of a sudden but not this one this time or whatever they're the literal second stringers yeah yeah and they're and it's often um they're often disparaged as like these are people who couldn't have made it as creators and whatever. And, and I feel like there's this sort of, um, in those areas, it's not that they're just viewed unabashedly positively, but there's this kind of equilibrium between like disparaging and appreciating. And so their, their role in the ecosystem is this kind of, you know, dynamic equilibrium between love and hate. And, and I do think it takes a special kind of person to and or there are maybe multiple kinds of people but there it's not everybody right like you there are some that you know have a really thick skin there are some that are just so committed to you know um to to you know the enterprise of art or whatever that they they they, and they believe they're doing good so there's a sort of true believer there's the grumpy low agreeableness person but um but it's not for everybody and so i wonder if that i mean you know, there's a, there's enough acceptance in the community that they're sort of treated with respect, but they d- still day to day have to put up with a lot of shit. And I, I wonder if that's kind of the best we could hope for for science as well. Yeah. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. Well, not necessarily the last thing, but 
one thing we haven't gotten to yet, which I'm curious what you guys think, which is, I think it's, a, he, Ida is quoting Bruno Latour, who I think is one of the people who is now saying, I didn't mean it in the way that some people <laughs> took it, which I would love to read some of his more recent, um, like, yeah, that would be really interesting. I think he's written some essays recently about what he did and didn't mean by his 80s and 90s work on science criticism. But um, so in one of the quotes, apparently Latour said that scientists write in a way that chases the reader away. And when I read that, it really resonated with me because I feel like a lot of the stuff about transparency now is about how we've been writing articles in a way that's advertisement and not inviting scrutiny and criticism. And that's for other scientists within our field, that we haven't been writing things in a way that allows even someone in the exact same subdiscipline to critically evaluate, like to see your data or to see what you plan to do versus what you ended up doing. Um, and then, so taking that broader, like, should we be writing in a way not just that allows the peer reviewers and the pe- would-be peer reviewers, people in your subdiscipline, to critically evaluate it, but that invites even a slightly broader audience to be able to have the ammunition they need or the information they need to critically evaluate it? And what would that look like? How would you write a paper that, so that it's less like advertisement and more inviting criticism and verification and so on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I had I had very strong feelings about the Latour quote, but also the sort of Ida kind of the things Ida said before and after because I felt like it was that point that Latour was making that point that Ida was making had a lot of potential and just missed and there was like a better version of it I would like to see, right? So the the Latour quote he's saying and this this is where I think like science studies and and philosophy of science often disconnects with science is he's he's saying like you know it's in the context of talking about you know science as texts in this very disconnected way right and he's saying like there's three things that you can do when you read a science article you can you can ignore it like you can just not be affected by it you can take it totally at face value or you have to have a lab and money and resources to dispute it and i i was just like no dude like it's not that simple and and you know like to you know when we read articles when we um you know when we do things when scientists do things like it's not like i when i read an article i'm not faced with the two stark choices of either accept everything at face value or go to the lab like there are so many other things and and so they just the fact that they like completely missed that felt like it was in order to build this point about how science is exclusive to say like well in order to be a critic you have to have a lab and you have to actually go and and do it yourself and I was like no like that but and this was such an opportunity because I think this is what you're talking about Samin is that the other things that we do when we read an article and evaluate it by reading it not by running to the lab but not just by accepting what it is those are the things that are facilitated by openness and transparency Mm -hmm. those are the things that are facilitated by having access to a pre-registration so you can see what they planned in advance by having access to the data the code the materials we've always done but in the 90s no that wasn't common no but we've always done that kind of work that those things facilitate we've always looked at articles and evaluated the arguments and we've always looked at them and said are there alternative explanations do the means actually like not not all the time perfectly but the way this is written is as if that never ever happens as if scientists mm-hmm. never critically read articles and have never done it and to me it was just such an extreme version of the argument um and and so that was that was part of where i got the and then the other guess, thing that was connected to that was the this idea that it's written to exclude 
And again, this this is one of my pet peeves is when when people go off about like jargon and technical language as being exclusionary and and I'm like there are two completely different versions of that that people always conflate. One is technical language that is known and has a shared meaning by experts that improves what a journal article fundamentally is, which is expert-to-expert communication. I should not have to explain what a t-test is or how an fMRI works or what the social relations model is or any of these other things when I write an article to other peers. And then there is the obscurantist, shitty writing version of jargon, which deserves criticism. And I feel like people take that first category and they use it to make an argument about things being exclusionary. And it's like, no, there's such a thing as really well-written stuff that's not readable to outsiders. And so, and and that's where like having to have certain a certain level of expertise is important. And they talk about sort of like expertise as power and that kind of thing in, in Ida's article. And it's like, well, yeah, but some of that is absolutely critical to how we communicate. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to defend Ida or Latour's position, but I do think I want to push back a little bit on the idea that scientists have always understood that we should be critically evaluating each other's papers and so on. Because we've, like we've always understood more than zero, which is how sure, it's portrayed. But by to Latour. me, I guess I for me it was a really eye opening how people have reacted, for example, to the peer reviewers openness initiative. Like a lot of editors and authors act as if that's like a violation of their personal intimate like you're asking to smell their underwear or something. If we had always understood that like a reviewer or even reader's role is to ask, well, how did you come to those conclusions? Can you show me? Can you, you know, can well, I run other analyses and so on? People wouldn't bristle so much at the pretty reasonable demands that the peer reviewers openness initiative is making. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think that you can think that criticism is important, but think that anonymous criticism has advantages over public criticism. But the peer reviewers openness initiative is just saying, as a reviewer, I would like to be able to see your data. And if if you if I can't, I would like you to state in the paper why the data can't be made available. Yeah. Oh, okay. so this, this is why this is why I thought Ida, it was a missed opportunity because that there has there is and has been resistance, but there is and has been also always people wanting to do that, wanting to vet yeah. things. And there's a long, long history of people saying, you know, I mean, we talk about mm-hmm. Tony Greenwald as an editor, but there's a long history of lots of people. And people have always done that up to a certain point, like way before the replication crisis. I submitted articles where I got a review asking, can you publish the descriptive statistics because it would help us understand what's going on. Like we've always done some of that. And I think the missed opportunity would have been to say, this is part of what is happening within the scientific community. This is also something that other people could do. And we need to capitalize on that and build more of it. Mm -hmm. And this is is where I think people like Latour and Ida are missing an opportunity to connect with scientists. Because when I read that and they say, the only things you can do Mm -hmm. is accept the text at face value or quit the text and enter the laboratory, which is a direct quote from Latour. Mm -hmm. Those are your only options. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, dude, you don't understand how science works. Yeah, but I guess I read it, and again, Probably I'm being way too generous and I'm this is not what Latour and Ida's position is, but there's a position to be taken. Maybe this is the same thing you're saying, which is that the way lay people understand science is way more noble and way more generous than 
like I don't think lay people would expect this much resistance as much as we've seen to basic you know requests for non-private non-sensitive data oh yeah um so i think like shedding light on that and telling the public like hey scientists actually aren't putting verification and criticism and correction number one above all else there's actually a lot of people who put their own self-interest above that and you know even will go to the extent of like shaming and trying to ostracize people who are trying to do this correction stuff you know, it's a balance of it's a empirical question what the public is assuming is going on in science, but I think there's a lot of value to pointing out that things are a lot less noble and pure than what people might believe. And yeah, I think I'm I'm taking a different position than what Ida and Latour are. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you on that. <laughs> is that a good place to end? <laughs> <laughs> Last time we disagreed, this time we agree. <laughs> yeah, I know what our our readers are gonna, or our listeners are gonna be so confused. Um, cool. Well, yeah, we we, sh- we will definitely post a link to this in the show notes. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks guys, thanks everyone for listening to the Black Goat. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.